Hello, I'm glad you joined us today. Um, if you clicked on this link, that means that the last one did not depress you too much. <laughs> glad to have you back with us. Thanks for giving it another shot. I say that because if you weren't with us last week, we started a new series through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is a difficult book. Can be kind of depressing can be kind of uh, awkward if you don't know how to interact with it so it'd be easy for you to have listened to last week and then gone and buried yourself in hot pocket crumbs and watched something on tv that you've seen a thousand times and not got up to eat or bathe and let the bills stack up on the counter because after all nothing matters <laughs> that's what we found out we started this series where Solomon, likely Solomon, if not Solomon, someone in Solomon's position, said that he had all the money in the world and all the opportunity in the world and all of the wisdom that he needed. And he concluded with all of his experimentation and all of his wisdom that everything is meaningless. It's futility. It's absurdity. So we kind of wrestled through the summary of the book, which is the first chapter. And it'd be easy to walk away from that just kind of not sure what to do unless you have Christ. But I'm glad you're here with us now for round two. Congratulations, you've made it this far. Seriously, it's a hard book. Martin Luther, among others, on, uh, of the same rank, on the same shelf of theologian, consider Ecclesiastes to likely be the hardest book in the Bible. Not hard, like hard to understand what's going on and hard to know what he's saying, because that much is not that hard. It's pretty easy to understand what's going on, but it's hard to contend with emotionally. It's hard to know how to take a book like this and apply it to our lives. I mean, I said last week that whenever I first read this for the first couple times as a young Christian, my main question to everyone around me is, why is this even in the Bible? Why do we need Ecclesiastes? It is so depressing. I'd rather just go to the New Testament and read about Jesus saying nice things to people. That's what I'd rather spend my time. This book kind of lets all the air out of the room. But I think the answer, and this is what we came to, the answer is it brings us to Christ, the book of Ecclesiastes. It brings us to Jesus, and we need Jesus to make sense of this repetitive, futile, meaningless, confusing world. We need Jesus to find meaning in the treadmills of every day of working, playing, going to sleep, working, toiling, trying to scratch out an existence here only to die and have it all go away and not be remembered. We need Christ to make meaning of this thing that we call life under the sun. We made a big point last time of showing that Jesus loves the book of Ecclesiastes. He's excited it's in your Bible. It, it brings the honest reader to the place of, of saying, I need Christ for ultimate meaning in this world. I need Jesus for ultimate meaning. So it's a hard book, but it's an honest book. It's, it's honest in the, in, in the way that the author doesn't just say what he's thinking out loud. He says what you're thinking out loud, but maybe you're afraid to let it come out to, to the light of day, your darkest moments. I mean, we all think things that we don't say, and he says it. And, and he doesn't balance every gloomy statement or every sad statement with, yeah, but I know that's not true. I know that's not true. I know it's more hopeful and more positive than what I'm venting right now, but he doesn't do that. It's 
stunning how honest this book is. It's actually a little disarming how transparent it is. And it, it's not just an honest book. Ecclesiastes is a missional book. This is one of the things I love most about Ecclesiastes. Is it, is it actually answers the questions that humanity is actually asking. Um, this was written 3,000 years ago. I don't think it's less relevant. In fact, I'm going to make the case a little bit later. I think it's more relevant. I think every eon that goes by, this becomes more and more and more relevant. And I would even venture to say, and this is just me, and it's just my opinion, but I think the book of Ecclesiastes is probably more relevant in 2020 than in any century in the past two or three centuries. I think it's that big of a book for us right now. I know many of you who are watching this that are part of Legacy that I know are grade A missionaries. And I know that some of you yearn to be and you are working on being a missionary to the city that you live in. And you need to know that this book is a heavy resource. Ecclesiastes. Because it's a, it's a book for curious skeptics. Everyone, even cynics and doubters, want to know the meaning of the life that they live under the sun, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says repeatedly. So this is a book for people that think that there might be a God, but they're not quite sure about the God of the Bible. Or they believe in a man upstairs or a grand creator, but they're not so sure about this carpenter from Nazareth who calls himself Jesus. That they're not sure about. So Ecclesiastes, it might be one of the most important books in the Bible for many because it answers these real questions with very honest answers. And ironically, Ecclesiastes doesn't have any answers. It's a book full of questions. Ecclesiastes will lead you to other parts of the Bible where the answers are found, but you're not going to find any from this guy. This book does nothing but pose questions and hard ones, right? But it pushes us towards an honest assessment of what we build our ideas on, the foundation, the glue that holds all of our worldview together. It makes us come face to face with what makes us up, what drives us. It's the why behind everything. Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you do what you do? What drives you? What are your motivations? See, I think it's missional because when your neighbor, when their marriage blows up because somebody was overworking or because there was an adultery situation going on, when something like that happens, why are you doing what you're doing? It might feel like an awkward question, but it's the most loving and missional question you could possibly ask to get someone to come to the very ends of the why in their life. The best thing we can do for a lot of people is help them see how they have tried to fix their own broken lives with their own two hands and without Jesus. It's the most loving thing we can do is show people that life under the sun is spent chasing vapors that disappear things that look like they're going to satisfy, but they never do. Things that look like they're going to bring joy and meaning and purpose, but they're deceitful and it never really happens. So it's a missional book on top of being an honest book, but it's also a practical book. Very practical. The, your everyday thoughts and your everyday decisions are dealing with things like death and retirement and money and sex and time and justice and oppression, and relationships, and pleasure, and reputation, confusion, anxiety, depression, exhaustion, among many other things, this book is full of real-world, real-life application. This 3,000-year-old book will bring into very intense focus 
why you pay your bills the way you do, why you use your phone to access certain kinds of media that you do, how you see sex, how you see retirement in this country that we live in. It forces you to look at all of those things and then it shows us how to apply true principles. So we're going to jump into the experiment that this preacher, the, the main voice in the book of Ecclesiastes, this experiment that he goes through by trying to find meaning and find purpose in this confusing world, living under the sun, but without Christ. Right? And so we're going to jump in chapter 2. This will be verse 1. We're just going to walk through this chapter because I don't want you to miss any of the details. There's a lot here. This is the word of the Lord for you and for me. This is how we're going to see Christ very clearly today. Chapter 2, verse 1. The preacher says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Okay, so he begins his experiment by partying pretty hard, right? With wine and with laughter. He's looking for joy in this type of an environment, and he's asking the whole question the whole time, will this bring any meaning to my life? Will it bring any purpose to my life, this life under the sun? And it's important for you and me to know when we read this that no one can party like this guy could party, right? We all think we could throw good parties. I'm sure you do. I'm sure it's a great party. You need to know what this guy does on a normal day so it kind of builds the context of what a party looks like. And we find that if this is in fact Solomon, we can get a picture of it in 1 Kings 4. So stay where you're at because we're going to splash this on the screen. But this is what it says. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores, and that's about a 55-gallon drum, so 30 of those of fine flour and 60 of those big drums of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, which is a kind of deer, and fattened fowl. Okay, that much food, it has been estimated to feed up to 20,000 people. 20,000 people. That's Tuesday, by the way. This is just an average day. This isn't a party. What do you think an elaborate party look like. This guy, whether it was Solomon or someone posturing as Solomon or someone in the same position as Solomon, was building Margaritaville in his backyard and lived the party life. He'd wake up at noon 30 every day, drunk under a table with a tattoo he doesn't recognize and people all around him, he doesn't know who they are. This was his every day. It sounds, it sounds dumb that that type of life might ever promise meaning. But, it, but it's not for no reason that we are drawn to laughter and wine and party. You know, colleges last week started letting students move back into the dorms. And of course, the question that's in the news all the time is, are we going to see a spike in the COVID virus? Because now we've got all these college students together and they love to party. They're just going to get together, they're not going to have masks on, and they're going to party, and it's going to be one big fat petri dish, and we're going to see spikes in this virus, and we're all going to have to go back to our homes. And so we ask ourselves, not being in college, why risk it? Why risk that? Because for college students, parties hold a measure of meaning. It's a, it's a new experience. It's something new. Laughter, booze, 
friends, possibilities, new experiences with joy. It looks satisfying. I mean, good luck shutting that down. <laughs> I, I wanted to party. It's all I wanted to do. It looked like so much fun. Everyone's laughing. Everyone's half drunk, but, it, but they're loose. Everyone enjoys everybody. It, it looks pleasurable. It looks new. It looks like a new experience. And friends, listen, this isn't just for college students. This escape from heavy reality. We all do it. We all take the, the anesthesia of enjoyment in wine, in substance, in party, in heavy laughter to just escape. And listen, the long list of ways that we do this in a civilized way is a boring list. And I won't even go into it, but you know what I'm talking about. Anyone can escape. Anyone can escape. But then, as we have already read, the preacher pivots away from this. And he moves to be a little bit more industrious. So this is what it says in verse 4. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Okay, <laughs> so he's moving away from parties because laughing at everything is eventually no one laughing at anything, right? I mean, Margaritaville even runs its course eventually. I looked up the lyrics to that song, by the way. And, and Jimmy Buffett says, don't know the reason, stayed here all season, nothing to show but this brand new tattoo, right? Wasting away in Margaritaville. It's a dumb song. I know everyone knows the lyrics. Don't email me. It's just not a very cool song. But this guy, he pivots away from that to do what? To build monuments, to build parks and houses and buildings and forests. He built forests in Ponds and puddles and watering systems for the forest and roads and he built cities, he built neighborhoods. You see, many scholars believe that the preacher in this case, maybe Solomon, maybe not, was attempting to build another kind of Eden, a, an impressive world within a world. Something that kind of looks like a godless garden of Eden, a place of perfection that celebrates him as a good, innovative creator, and he is showcasing his creation for everyone to see. And so do we. We do the same thing. We build, we build as creatively, as innovatively, and as big as we possibly can. But what this preacher shows us is that we're never going to come close to building on the same way that he could. I mean, we love to Instagram the garden that we planted or pictures of our home gym. He built forests. <laughs> he built stadiums. We take Pictures, and we like to showcase the fact that we renovated the kitchen or we found some old reclaimed wood and made a coffee table. This guy built watering systems in cities. But we still like to build things, don't we? And showcase them. We still like to create, construct, maneuver, build, fix, nurture, and then show people what we've done. Beautiful songs, beautiful books, great businesses, great families, great churches. We all love to do this. And we kind of hope, in some small sense, that this new Eden, this world within a world, won't have any weeds in it. It won't have any thorns or thistles for us. That's what we hope for anyway. In fact, every once in a while, someone comes along in this world with a lot of means and a lot of opportunity, and they try to one-up Solomon. They try to big some, build something that is bigger than life itself. I immediately think of Elon Musk because he's so brilliant and he's so out of the box and he has built everything from 
subway systems to flamethrowers to rockets to trucks. He's built a lot. And he says this in his autobiographical work. There have to be reasons that you get up in the morning and you want to live. Why do you want to live? What's the point? What inspires you? These are ecclesiastical questions, by the way. What do you love about the future? If the future does not include being out there among the stars and being a multi-planet species, I find that incredibly depressing. I hope you hear what he's saying. He's saying if I don't have an opportunity to colonize planets, if I don't have an opportunity to do something grandiose and show even that the forests of Solomon are weak, if I can't do that, then it's kind of depressed. It's kind of just a depressing world. Yet if Solomon were there in this moment, he would lock eyes with Elon and say, oh yeah, wait till you pull it off. Wait till you actually colonize a little base with six people on it on Mars. You think you're depressed? You will be depressed. See, he goes above and beyond what we can do to show that anything that we can do will come to the same conclusion that he found. Then our preacher pivots again away from showcasing what he has created to accumulating wealth and then signs of wealth. He says this in chapter 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, in many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Okay. He had tons of wealth, tons of gold, silver, which was money back then, tons of help, tons of servants, singers, performers, animals, cattle, anything. This guy did not download movies and music. He bought the studios and he bought the record labels. He just had them around. He had anything he wanted. Listen, this is what he's trying to show you and this is what I want you to see as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. This was a life, this man led a life where he could speak anything to existence. If he wanted it, he can say, make it happen, and it happened. If he desired it, it appeared before him because that's the kind of money, opportunity, and drive that he had. You see, he's not just building a new Eden, a a world within a world, he wants to be a sovereign ruler as well, just like what we would see in God. And this is what we really want. It's not money. No one wants money for the sake of having money. We want money because it gives us the ability to speak things into existence, to say, I want that and have no one tell us you can't have. That's really why we want it. There's a thrill in not being told no to the cravings and the hungers of our hearts. I think we read this and we think that if we had this kind of money, we'd be more sensible than him, right? We'd be more noble. But look at what happens when in life you see finances and money and wealth thrown on people at the last minute. You see how we behave. Have you seen what happens to a 21-year-old when they get picked in the first round of the NFL draft? I have. I've been a student of sports for a long time. They buy the fastest car they can get their hands on. They pack it with a couple of white tigers. They speed off to a house the size of a middle school, complete with a basketball court, and they live their life because they have this moment, as brief as it might be, where no one can tell them no. Whatever they want, they can have. They can speak their hopes and speak their hungers into existence. And I'd struggle with the same thing. And you would too. 
you would too. And we find out that this man didn't even restrict himself to one wife. He collected concubines as well. You see, he also showed uninhibited sexuality. If this is in fact Solomon, we would know from other passages in the Old Testament, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. We're talking about a man that never ran out of fantasies. Never. Not even that was withheld from him. This is what you need to see. This is a guy who sees it, he wants it, he gets it. He sees it, he wants it, he gets it, and no one can get in his way. And no one's ever going to tell him no. He's a God unto himself in an Eden that he has created. And his voice, now much more seasoned, much more reflective, in a lamenting tone says, Been there, done that, and there was nothing for me at the end of it. And there's no ultimate meaning at all. It's hevel. It's, it's something that is vaporizing. It looks like it's got substance and it really doesn't. It's there and it's not there at the same time. But let's be clear. He found pleasure under the sun. He did. He says so. He says this in verse 10. We'll go back. He says in verse 10, And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. But he did have pleasure. He did have pleasure. But the conclusion was, is none of it was worth anything. None of it was. The temporal pleasure was just that. It was temporal. It came and it was gone. It was fleeting. He'd be happy for a minute and then totally dissatisfied again. He'd have a glimpse of joy and it would be stolen away from time. Hevel. That's his conclusion. His conclusion to you and to me today as I did everything I wanted and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. Nothing at the end of it. Nothing to show for it. I'm back where I started. You see, this is why I'm convinced. This book, and I'm resolved, this book has more power now than it did 3,000 years ago. I, I, because, hear me in this, I think Solomon might envy you and me. He might be envious of us in this. I mean, our houses are better than his house. We walk in, we have AC and electricity. We have running water. We have Alexa. We have everything that we've ever wanted. We can have anything brought into us by Uber Eats. You could have Tex-Mex today, Indian food tomorrow, barbecue the day after that. I don't know why you wouldn't have barbecue all three days, but you see what I'm saying? You can have anything you want brought from any other place in the city right to your doorstep. You could go to Kroger, not some fancy store or anything like that, but you could just go to Kroger, some run-of-the-mill department store or supermarket, and you can find food brought in from all over the world with language on the wrapper that's not English. Brought to your doorstep, marketplace of the world. You can download any movie that was ever made and watch it within an hour. You can download every song that's ever been made and listen to it. You have the immediacy of the internet that can give you any answer to any question you might have and it contains an endless harem of people. You too, you too can have endless fantasies answered just like he. This is not a message for the ancients. This is a message for us today in 2020 in Knoxville, Tennessee. And here he is. If Solomon was able to snap his fingers and have everything that he ever wanted, where does that leave you and me? Where does that leave us? 
We have more than he did, and yet it's not enough. You know, John D. Rockefeller, who was considered the wealthiest American in history, just to put it in context, at his height, he had twice as much wealth as Jeff Bezos does today. It's pretty wealthy, right? And a reporter asked him once, how much money is enough? And his answer was, a little bit more. A little bit more. That's the lie we believe. That where happiness is and joy is, is having more of what we already have. Of what we already have. It's not enough though. Because here we have Solomon, who is worth approximately trillions upon trillions upon trillions. Some have attempted to do the math, and it is upwards of 20 to 40 times what Rockefeller had. A wealthy man. And he played all of this out, this experiment, and he's right back at the same place. Life is boring, life is predictable, it is hevel. It's a vapor, it's a mist, it disappears as soon as he puts his hand around it. And this is what he has to say, verse 12. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than there is darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And, and I said in my heart, that is, this is also vanity. For of the wise and of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after wind. I know that sounds a lot like last week's sermon, what he just said, but that's because last week was a, a summary of sorts. But did you catch in there? It almost sounds like he's going to balance it. He's going to balance all the negativity by talking about how, how much better it really is, even if it's just in the meantime, to be wise over being a fool. It sounds like it, but no. He goes on to say that, but we both die and nobody remembers us. We all go right back to dust, just like we came. We'll have a headstone at our grave, and eventually even the engraving and whatever stone it is that's sitting there will wear away and you can't read it, just like the tombstones we have in our cemeteries downtown that have been there for over a couple hundred years. You can't even read the names anymore. Your kids will know who you are. Your grandkids will too. Your great-great-grandkids might not. Four more generations, they won't even know your name. Won't even know your name. Uh, oh yeah, and all the stuff you collected, all the things you accumulated, all the things you worked so hard for and toiled so hard for. This is what he says about that. Verse 18, I hated all the toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work 
is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, there's one passage in there that stands out that I just think to get through some confusion because it's going to come up a couple more times. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat or drink and find enjoyment in his toil. That phrase, there is nothing better, that's, that's a statement of resignation. It's not like whenever we spend all day working in the lawn and we've lost five pounds in sweat and we're sunburned and someone hands us a, an iced glass of iced tea, right? That's when we say, boy, there's nothing better than a glass of iced tea on a hot day. That's not what's going on here. This is more of the best you can expect. Here's your door prize. This is kind of the best you can hope for. It's resignation. The best we can hope for is a little bit of food, a little bit of drink, a little bit of toil. You'll have a momentary pleasure occasionally and then it evaporates. It's gone like that. It's kind of the best we can hope for. That's what he's saying. What is our response to such a gloomy resignation? We ignore it. I know it sounds odd, but we ignore it. This is how Blaise Pascal addresses this. He says, as men have not been able to cure death, misery, or ignorance, they have taken to not thinking about them, so as to become happy. What this means is if we cannot outrun these existential questions that we don't have any answers for, if we can't outrun them with our open bar, if we can't outrun them with sex and memorials and wealth in the trillions and these little Edens that we build around us and showcase, if we can't do that, then we'll just ignore and we'll pretend that it is not gloomy. See, this is sad. It's a depressing book sometimes. And this is right where he wants us. So smart. This book is so smart. This is right where he wants you and me. This place of utter resignation, of no more answers, of having tried everything and coming up short in every direction. He wants us with our hands up in the air saying, I don't even know what to think about this or what to do next. Enter Jesus. Remember, this book is only as valuable as it brings us to Christ as a frustrated person trying to live on this spinning rock under the sun. I said last week that one of the things that frustrated me most in this preacher's conclusions is that we're going to build, and not only will it not be remembered, all of our stuff's going to go to somebody else who didn't even work for it, right? It bugs me. It seems scandalous. It is. And it's also a window into the gospel, which is a scandalous story for you and for me. The gospel is scandalous because it's a story, satisfying one of one in Jesus who worked and toiled and built and worked and toiled and built perfectly to hand the blessings and the treasures and the inheritance to you and me and we didn't work for it. <laughs> this book is about Christ. Scandalously, all the spiritual blessings and treasures in heaven are wrapped up in Christ and he is given to you and to me. This is how Paul says it in Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, listen, this changes everything. It reshuffles how we see treasure, how we put our pleasures. It puts it all in context for us, this life under the sun. It's totally transformed. Right? Now, instead of everything being meaningless, everything has meaning. It's robust with meaning. It's bursting with meaning. Now, toil and work has meaning. You paying your bills, it has meaning. Going to the gym on the days you don't want to go to the gym, it's got meaning. Increase has meaning. Loss has meaning. Laughter finds its rightful place. So does mourning. Money, wealth, they finally have a purpose. With Christ is our total treasure. Just a simple note. God is not the enemy of pleasure or delight or joy. He's not the enemy of these things. He doesn't, he doesn't build us to hate creativity or industry. I mean, there's actually no pleasure that you experience that you weren't actually wired for. All right? You might bend your pleasure towards sin. I might too, but we were wired for it. Whenever you find pleasure and joy, even in the temporal evaporating moments, there is something in that moment that you were wired for. If it could be done to God's glory, you were wired for it. Let me suggest that our core problem as humanity is not that we cannot find enough pleasure, not that we do not have enough pleasure, it's that we're not going far enough. We're not going far enough, friend. We're not accessing enough pleasures. This is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. You see, our God looks at the preacher here, or Solomon, a man who can speak his very desires into existence, that can create Edens all around him and showcase the greatest things ever built, and then God looks at him and says, is this the best you can do? You're building mud pies. And these aren't ever going to satisfy you. It's not that you're not finding pleasure, you're not finding enough. Our lie to ourself is that we need more of what we have to be happy. Whether it's money. Money isn't working like it used to. It was great to have a six-digit income right, for nine minutes. And then the novelty kind of went away and now I need... I need a seven-digit income. I mean, what we look at is I need more of what I already have, whether it's sex, whether it is substance, whether it is work, a little bit more, as John D. Rockefeller says, is what will make me ultimately happy. I mean, if you could just pick one thing that the preacher talks about in this passage, right? Laughter, wine, work, industry, creativity, sex. If you could have one of these things, what do you think will get you across the goal line? Which of these things do you just need a little bit more of to finally make you happy? Do you think you can get there faster than the preacher can get there? Friends, listen, our attempts to secure ultimate meaning on this life, on this planet under the sun, it requires repentance from us. It requires you and me confess where we are trying to build something beautiful without Christ, where we're trying to find an ultimate meaning without Jesus, and then it requires us to turn from it to put all of our joys and pleasures that have gotten bigger than him, that we have chased and that we've been enslaved to and put them at his feet. 
our failure to find purpose and meaning in this world, it requires that we look at the gospel, the good news of God for mankind through the person of Christ, who came to live, die, and live again to give you what you didn't work for, who came to build and toil and sweat and bleed and die to give you and me what we did not work for, what we could never earn. And then Jesus, in this gospel, reformats what pleasure is, what a treasure looks like, because he becomes an infinite treasure to you and me, and that reshuffles the rest of the deck. That's the treasure of belonging to him, the treasure of never being forsaken, of always being safe, the treasure of never being lied to, the treasure of being loved for who you are, the treasure of being considered in every moment, the treasure of never being alone, the treasure of always being thought of, the treasure of always having hope, the treasure of always having plenty, of always having his blessing, the treasure of always having his very spirit in us. Friends, when we find Christ as our treasure, all of our temporal blessings, they don't vanish, but they take the rightful place. They are put in context, right? Sex has meaning again. So does work, food and fun, laughter. Everything makes sense. It's put in its rightful place. It's in context. We don't demand that they serve us. We don't demand that they bring us meaning. We just celebrate what we have when we have it to the glory of God. So we don't break the pleasures and treasures around us anymore because we need them to save us. We are in effect able to stop making mud pies in Lewis's words. And one day, you and I, we will be in a new Eden if we are in fact in Christ. And this new garden is better than the first because Jesus will be there. <laughs> That's the best part about what's waiting for us. The place that's been created for us, this place of hospitality and welcome. It's not going to be because everything that is sad is no longer and everything that is shameful will be gone. It's not that. It's that Jesus will be there. Christ will be the centerpiece of even eternity itself because death has not swallowed Jesus. Not. He has made it to Eden and he's preparing a place for you and for me. And he will take the crooked things and make them straight, as he says in the last chapter. And he removes futility from us. He wipes away your tears. He wipes away your boredom, your desperation, depression, and exhaustion. He wipes them away. This is what it says in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice, John says, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Friend, listen, pleasure is going to be ours. Satisfaction will be ours. Joy, meaning, purpose will be ours. You'll never have a craving again. You'll never be depressed. You'll never hate your life. You'll never hate your role, your gifts, your job. You'll never be hungry. You'll never be alone. You'll never be bored. You'll never be skeptical again. But until that day, we have our broken gardens with weeds and thorns and thistles. You're never going to find your Eden here. Here is where we celebrate and find meaning as Christ is our infinite centerpiece of affection 
and joy, and we let all the other pleasures take their rightful place in line. Listen, that's all I have for you today. We'll pick it up in chapter 3 next week. just want you to know I love you, and I'm very thankful for you. And I'm praying for you. And if you're a part of Legacy Church, I'm praying for you by name. praying for you every week. I'm praying for your safety. I'm praying for your encouragement, for your friendship, for your community. Please let us know if you need anything. We love you a bunch. Talk to you next week. Have a good day.